stories don't define you, how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. In my work with coaching clients, I guide people to improve their communication using storytelling as the foundation of our work together. What I've realized over years of coaching and podcasting is that the majority of people don't realize the impact of the stories they share on their internal messages and on the people they're sharing them with. What really lights me up is guiding executives and uncovering the stories in their lives that are meaningful. The stories that, when shared with the right audience in the right way, connect, inspire, and motivate. Here's what a former client had to say about our work together. As a leader of leaders, I struggle with how and when to use my stories to emphasize the points my audience is looking for. It's a delicate balance between sounding like I'm bragging and delivering a message that needs to be heard. Sarah's approach to storytelling clears that obstacle so that you can deliver a clear and concise message using your stories to emphasize your points. It's truly amazing when it all comes together. Greg McDonough, Blackburn Capital Advisors and President of the Entrepreneurs' Organization of Washington, D.C. Visit elkinsconsulting.com to learn more about working with me. Today, I'd love to introduce my guest, Laura Benedetto, that I met through Mike Fritzius, I believe. Um, and he has introduced me to quite a handful of wonderful humans, very thoughtful humans. And Laura is absolutely no exception to that. As a matter of fact, as soon as I started reading her book, I knew somebody else who needed to read her book. And um, she offered to not only inscribe it, but put a thoughtful message to my friend and put it in the mail. And my friend did receive it last week and was absolutely blown away by the message and by the thought and kindness. So Laura, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your thoughtful human kindness. Well, thank you. And you're welcome. It's great to chat <laughs> with you again. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love it when people connect so quickly and thoroughly because, um, you know, I think, I think life is just so much more interesting and inspiring when people open up and choose to be connected in this way. So thank you again for joining me. I wholeheartedly agree. And you're so welcome. The pleasure is mine. <laughs> So Laura, um, I'd love for you to just to give our listeners some context, maybe just tell us a little bit about what you do, what makes you tick in terms of your work and what you love about it. Sure. Um, I am the owner of three companies um, and all of them center around the idea of helping people to feel uh, their most successful, fulfilled, and happy. That is the thing that makes me tick. So I own a marketing company and I help entrepreneurs to be successful and feel like they can support their families and uh, to thrive in the business landscape. I own an education company, which is the book that um, you know uh, is contained within that, which is the one that we sent to your friend. And uh, that is all about the six habits. And these are mental habits. And these are things that help, um, help us to become our most successful selves as humans and uh, to be our most happy. It's interesting how much of this work really affects the marketing stuff um, and the business stuff. You will generally only ever um, excel as much uh, professionally as you have personally and spiritually. Um, and then my other company is I own an ammunitions company with um, my husband. It is a manufacturing company. And we help people to pursue the feeling of success and safety and peace of mind and knowing they can protect their families if something goes off the rails. Huh, really interesting. I didn't know about the third part. Surprise. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> <Surprise>. <laughs> Um, well, okay. Those are obviously somewhat related because it, it all fits under your um, mission, I would say, in life, which is to help people feel safe and and productive and healthy internally and externally. Absolutely. So um, the next question, yeah. So the next question I'm going to ask is the question I ask all of my guests, and that's to share a little something about yourself that most people might not know about you. And the reason I ask this question is, again, to give our listeners some context before we dig into the deeper conversation and stories that were pivotal moments in your life. Um, I'm really nerdy. 
like really, really super nerdy. Like I love science. Um, I don't know why I didn't become like a scientist or a biologist or a doctor of some sort. Like I'm fascinated with the weird stuff that people grow on their bodies. Like I love dermatology and I'm fascinated with like plant science and why things do what they do and like photosynthesis and like, you know, the cosmos and stuff like that. I'm absolutely fascinated. I mean, if you look at my Google search history, you'd be like, what is wrong with you? Like, I'm not looking up like current events. I'm like, you know, like Googling really specific, like um, plants and like what zones they're in and like what kind of care they need and like what they need to grow near and like what kind of pheromones they give off and what like companion plants and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I'm wicked nerdy. <laughs> I love that. I, I love nerdy people. I love people who geek out about things. As a matter of fact, one of my dearest friends is Melissa Hughes, and she wrote the book books Happy Hour with Einstein and Happier Hour with Einstein about how our brains work and how we can build um, confidence and satisfaction through understanding how gratitude affects the brain. She's an amazing speaker. So she calls it geeking out. She geeks out over neuroscience. Oh, so it's, I, yeah, it's geeking out for sure. I mean, yeah. when I was writing my book, that's all I was doing. I was like, Ooh, scientific studies. I get to observe people and I get, I'm going to get paid for this. Woo! Like it definitely activated all the nerd centers of my brain. Um, I was absolutely fascinated. I mean, I like dove into like the science of humans and human behavior. And someday when I get my own mm -hmm. podcast going, it's going to be all about human human behavior. So stay tuned for that eventually. <laughs> yes. Well, we may end up collaborating on that because I geek out over the power of stories on our brain. And apparently there's a lot of research out there that talks like the Eastern Washington University has a whole two-part program on um, narratives and how they affect your identity. And then I just interviewed a guy that wrote a book called Be Who You Want by Christian Jarrett, Dr. Christian Jarrett in the UK. Again, talking about personality and how we change over time and certain aspects that generally don't change and how trauma can change our personalities. Just so fascinating. That okay, is now I'm fascinating. <laughs> I, you know, I've got this longstanding theory that it, at some point I'll probably do a deep dive into, but right now I'm currently obsessed with plants. Give it a month. I'll be obsessed with something else. Um, but I've got this um, kind of like long held belief that the, um, the sounds that we hear when we hear our name, our name and those phonic sounds, they actually impact something to do with how our personalities are shaped. I think our names are uh, very, very largely influential over who we become because we, when we constantly hear the same name and the same combination of sounds like repetitiously over the course of our lifetimes, that's doing something. I want to know what the something mm -hmm. is. So I'm probably going to do, do a deep nerdy dive into this at some time, at some point. Well, it has to be some sort of patterning, right? Like it has to be creating patterns of thought in our brain. It is. Because what sounds are they? create patterns. Sounds are patterns, right? That's right. I mean, it's literally uh -huh. sound vibration and then there's vibrational energy. And what is the vibrational right. energy of the name that you've been given? And what happens when people shorten your name? Uh, and what happens, like if you're a Jennifer and people always call you Jen, what does that do to you psychologically, spiritually, and um, you know, vibrationally? What does that actually do? Oh. And how many kids choose to change their names at different points in their lives? And how does that affect their identity? I remember my baby sister, her name is Karen, her middle name is Rachel, and she was Karen, and then she was Kay Rachel, and then she decided she just wanted to go by Rachel, and she was just exploring how she wanted to be um, referred to. So, at, I don't know, for maybe six months in fourth grade, she was Chaz. No idea where that came from. <laughs> and now she's cool. back to Karen. So yeah, that is fascinating. Isn't it? Oh, I'd love to gosh. look into we that more in depth. That. 
Oh, totally. And you know, there's, there's so many like fascinating uh, thought leaders that could probably add much more to this because they've gone down more of like the um, theoretical rabbit hole on this um, and the scientific and vibrational mm-hmm. energy science and all that other stuff. But I'm telling you, there's something here. I just don't know what mm-hmm. it is, but this is what my brain does at like 1130 at night. It pulls on a little thread <laughs> and then all night long, I can't sleep because that damn thread is unraveling. And then I wake up in the morning and like, hmm, what happens to us psychologically if we're Jennifer and we're called Jen? Does this is this the butterfly effect? Do we suddenly become different humans because someone decides to abbreviate our names against our will? Is this an, is this an atrocity? Is this a crime against man? What are we doing to our children? <laughs> <sighs> oh my gosh, there that could be a like I said, rabbit hole. What are we doing to our children? <laughs> what I like I said, I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, this is all sounding so familiar. I think we're like siblings from a different generation. I don't know what happened. <laughs> awesome girl. I will go down <laughs> the science the nerd thing. rabbit hole with you any day, but I don't think it's gonna fit in this podcast. No, no. And beside that, I when we started talking before I hit record, I really want to explore the conversation that we started there. And um, it all started because we were talking about how um, we can, how, how people impact us uh, sometimes beyond the impact of our parents so and our families in general. So there is a point we know um, through research that starting in around kindergarten, when kids start going to school, they are more influenced in their behavior by their peers than by their parents at that point. You know, it switches. So um, that makes sense in terms of what you were saying that when you were you were 15 and uh, is it a priest or pastor that had that, that kind of influence on you? So yep. tell us that story again, because I think this will, this will generate some deeper conversation. Absolutely. Um, it's funny. I actually wrote to my childhood pastor the other day and I was like, Hey, so anyway, 25 years ago, you did this thing. You don't remember, but I sure do. Um, and we've been chatting back and forth ever since, but anywho, here's the story being a skeptical teenager, <laughs> as most of us have been, um, I was going to church with my mom and listening to the commandments and, you know, like the, the sermon, you know, God instructs you to love him and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait a minute, record scratch excuse me, you are instructing me to love you. That's messed up. So I remember talking to the pastor who I have no idea why the man has endless patience for me and my skepticism, but he's always enjoyed my company for some crazy reason. And I I was like, Pastor Jim, why, why does God instruct us to love him? That seems really messed up. That doesn't like, no, like, that seems wrong to me. And, he, and then I just remember his response. And, you know, I'm, I mean, it's been 25 years, of course, I'm paraphrasing. But, it, you know, his response was basically, you know, like, God does not instruct us to love him. God instructs us to search something along those lines. And I'm like, okay, so what does this mean? He's like, your skepticism is good. He's like, God wants you to question, question everything. Don't ever just blindly accept this is what something is. Look at it, examine it, decide for yourself, and then choose to love him powerfully of your own accord. And I was like, oh, okay. So the impact of that conversation, um, well, it's been, uh, as I said to you, it has not been fun for those that perceive that they're in a position of authority above me because I question everything. You tell me to do something. Uh-huh. Why? Prove it. I'm not convinced it's valuable. Show your logic. I want to see your scientific notes. I don't believe you. Right. Um, and the same thing with like, you know, the religious thing. It's like, unless it makes sense, I'm not doing it. Like, you know, question and decide for yourself. Yes, that makes sense. Come to your own sovereign decision. Yes. That's affected every area of my life. Um, I started my first company at 19 because I worked for a bunch of people who I perceived to be idiots and I didn't want to answer to them. I'm like, you know less than me and yet you're instructing me on how to do things. I think we're done here. I got to go. So I carved out my own path at 19. I knew that I was infinitely capable and I proved it. I was. I messed up a lot because my hubris certainly got the best of me, but all of this, like my pastor's words have echoed throughout time for me over the last 25 years and quick math, I'm 40. Um, question everything, like trust and verify, like don't just accept things on blind faith. I have blind faith with nothing. 
nothing. Like the sky is blue. Really? I want to see it for myself. You know? Mm-hmm. What, what I love about this is that I've, I had kind of a similar experience in my youth with a rabbi and in Judaism, the expectation is that people will question things that they will discuss and come to their own conclusions. And I remember um, the, the joke, which is, you know, there's no Pope when it comes to Judaism. There's no one resource that is the answer that's going to tell you what is right and how to translate and, mm-hmm. um, and, and activate on whatever the, the Old Testament tells us or the Kabbalah, what it tells us. There's no ultimate authority in Judaism. And so um, the, the big joke when I was growing up was if you put 12 rabbis in a room and ask them a question, you're going to get 14 different answers. So, um, the idea is that you're constantly diving in and discovering and asking those questions. And I, I think one of the important aspects of this is this whole idea that, um, we can't, we can't find real connection and love through obligation. No, we cannot. And it's something that's, and so when you said, God doesn't instruct us to love him. He instructs us to explore our love for him and develop it. And, um, or I'm paraphrasing as well. Um, I paraphrase a lot. Have at it. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel the same about relationships. And um, early on in front of our boys, I said something to my husband. He had been gone for three weeks and I was raising these two boys by myself for three weeks. It gave me this, they were like four and six gave me a huge appreciation and respect for single parents who do this, um, whether they're military spouses or just mm-hmm. exclusively parenting on their own. Um, but I remember this moment when he came back and I said, wow, I really missed you. And he smiled. He's like, yeah, I missed you guys too. And I said, no, I really missed you. I missed your company. And the coolest thing about this is that I missed you because I missed your company, not because I needed you. We figured out our routines and it was exhausting and it was hard. It was really hard, but we figured it out. Now we got through those three weeks and it was fine. It just was hard. And I said, but I really missed your company. And at first he was a little insulted. (laughs) He's like, you don't need me. Well, yeah, because a man's primary need is to be needed. Right. Well, and women too, often they just want to be needed. They want to be loved in a, in a way that is so deep and complete that they they believe that being needed is a, a sign of love. But really what we talked about at the dinner table that night when the boys were so little was that we choose each other, that yes. every day we choose each other. And right. that's not obligation. That's not nope. need, right? right? And that's yep. far more powerful. Absolutely. Oh God, that's, that's awesome. I mean, you know what, this whole, this whole thing really brings up like the societal differences and like the different little sections of society that believe different structures of leadership are effective. I have never, ever, ever obviously believed in the leadership structure that says, do what I said because, and that's Mm -hmm. it. Just like you know, like I'm the boss. I remember, you know, no offense to my mom. She's visiting me here from Florida. So I won't say this too loud because she's in the other room. Um, but like (laughs) do what I said, because I said, so Mm, nope, won't be doing that. Like that to me, that's never been, um, a constructive style of leadership. She obviously hasn't, you know, she kind of figured it out pretty early on that that didn't work for me. I'm, I'm more of it. Like <laughs> yeah. show me your logic. I want to, if, if your logic makes sense, I won't fight you on it at all. Um, I will happily go along with it, you know, but like, I think that when you have leadership structures that discourage questioning, it's because they're insecure about their ability to lead. If you are secure in your strength as a leader and your position, you encourage questions because you know it's watertight and you are still there. It's it's really, I mean, if you look at like different governments and different rules and societies, different school systems, they, I mean, I 
passionately disagree with this when we basically squash children's natural rebellion um, and we get them to just comply and do what they're told. Like, I don't think people should be doing that to children. And I don't have children, but I used to be one. So I'm still qualified to weigh in here. Um, it's, <laughs> to me, it's a, it's a travesty because my pastor is one of the few people who encouraged my rebellion. And my rebellion is why I've gone on to create jobs for people. My rebellion is why I wrote a book and why I've you know stood on the TED stage and why I've done these things. It's because I refuse to do what I'm told. I question what I'm told and I decide the correct path for myself. And when we discourage children when they're little, when they're not so little, and when they're becoming teenagers, do as you're told. Um, you know, children are better seen and not heard. A, it dismisses their sovereign being. It dismisses their ability to actually trust themselves. Um, it teaches and sows the seeds of self-doubt. Um, and it actually makes it so people need books like mine. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like I love my book and it's really transformative, but I wish we lived in a world where you didn't need it. But we do because right. we actually, we've got leadership structures that basically tear children down Um and tear adults down before we ever have a moment to even stand, even on shaky legs. We don't even get to stand. We don't get to see how great we are. We don't get to learn to trust ourselves. I mean, when I first learned about the Judaic um, perspective of question everything, I was like, shoot, should have been a Jew. I would have been a good one. Um, <laughs> because like, it's not like that in the Christian faith and not to disparage either one, but it's literally just notable difference. Like, you know, I just think about what happens when we are actually taught to trust ourselves? Because like rebellion is actually, it's actually just trusting ourselves. That's what rebellion mm -hmm. is. And I hate the fact that rebellion has such a negative connotation. Rebellion is freaking awesome. Rebellion mm -hmm. is undeniable trust in self that says, I trust me more than you, which is what we should do. I should right. always trust me more than you because I'm responsible for this weird little meat suit that I got to cart my soul around in for the next 40 <laughs> years. I'm responsible for this. You're not. Why do you get to have a vote on what happens to my body? No. Why do you get to vote on where I spend my time or whether I go out at night causing trouble or not? Like people feel like this need to just do what they want and people act out and they overcorrect because the innate need mm -hmm. to just honor ourselves and trust ourselves is suppressed. That's why you see people acting like shit in public or getting drunk or right. doing all this other stuff. It's because of this incredible suppression. But if we're actually taught from birth, honor yourself, trust yourself, you make good decisions, mm -hmm. you get to do this, you sovereign little being. You're great. <laughs> exactly. Imagine. It's an exploration of identity. Correct. And by the way, my book actually does that whole thing. It the intent is to reacquaint you with your sovereign self and to get you back to trusting yourself and loving yourself because it never should have been stolen from you ever. Mm -hmm. But it was because that's what mm -hmm. raising uh, flawed humans by other flawed humans does. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're reminding me of a, a story that I just kind of shared a little bit on Instagram. Obviously, it was short. But basically, uh, when our boys were, I think they were eight and six, I think they were six and eight, it was a family reunion of my husband's side of the family. And my sisters-in-law came in with their little kids from um, the East Coast, particularly like Fairfax, Virginia, which is a much, much busier, probably less safe place to raise kids than where we are in Montana and uh, we were at a, a ranch in Montana in the mountains. It was absolutely gorgeous. And one of my sisters-in-law had a little, like a one-year-old, and I think she had a three-year-old or four-year-old. And we were, um, <laughs> we were staying in the lodge. The rest of the families were sharing different cabins across the property. And our boys would wake up in the morning. They'd be in their jammies, maybe put on slippers, go down the stairs of the lodge and go have breakfast with the rest of the family while my husband and I would sleep in a little bit. Then they'd come back upstairs after breakfast with these virtual strangers because we live in Montana. They all live in the East Coast, West Coast, um, whatever, all over the place. But they they were fine. They were super independent. And they'd come back into the room. They'd get dressed. We'd be getting up, getting dressed. And they'd go explore the property outside. 
by themselves or they'd bring their cousins, their older cousins with them. They were some of the younger ones. And they'd go to the creek and like pick up frogs and explore the creek and pick up rocks and look what was under them and explore because that's what they did. And I remember on the last day, my sister-in-law came up to me and she said, your boys, they're so independent and they're all about pleases and thank yous. They're so polite and friendly. She said, how did you get them to be so independent? And I remember kind of looking at her a little surprised. What do you mean get them to be independent? She said, well, how, how did you, what did you do so that they would be like that? And I said, well, and I got a little snarky, Laura. I, I know this won't surprise you at all because you know a little bit about me. Got a little snarky, but in my weird sense of humor, I said, well, I guess I err on the side of negligence. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And given, sounds like something I, mean, I would have said. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So granted, um, I could do that in Montana where I was living. You know, my boys had the luxury of being able to walk down to the library and walk to the grocery store for milk for me, or, you know, they're all our neighbors knew them and know them. And um, they knew which houses to go to if they felt like somebody was threatening them in any way. They knew to look for strangers. Um, but in general, it's a little bit of a safer place than raising kids in, in more urban environments. But oh, still, sure. I remember saying that and she looked at me like I had grown horns in that moment. And I could tell she was so conflicted. Is she joking or should I call Child Protective Services? <laughs> like It was this moment of total conflict for her. But I tell that story because um, I know that because our boys were the way they were and my influence on their friends and their friends' parents, a lot of their friends got a lot more freedom as a result of that. So um, mm. I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm curious, obviously your mom learned pretty quickly that you were going to contradict her if she didn't give you a, a reasonable answer. Literally at every turn, so, every gray hair on her head is my fault. <laughs> yeah. So what, well, yes, I, I hear that because I have a few gray hairs coming out now, but um, so what do you think was the difference in terms of how you were raised and, and what you did to contribute to her learning as a child? Because I think even as an adult child, we have to continue to contribute to the learning around us, whether it's to the kids in our lives whether they're ours or somebody else's, but also to the the adults that are supposed authority figures. How do how do we how do we guide them? Well, this is only something I've learned as an adult. I'm just thinking about it in a different order than you asked it, but bear with me. Uh, as I've gotten older, um, and my mom obviously has gotten older at the exact same pace, um, I've had to acquire a new skill and I've had to learn to manage up. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a skill that I actually acquired in business because, you know, uh, owning the marketing company, people hire us to do the marketing, but do you really want an expert that takes orders from you? Or do you want an expert that gives orders to you? Well, if you actually want shit done correctly, you will hire an expert to tell you what to do. Um, so I learned how to manage up very, very early in my career. And then I just started to realize that if I want a better relationship with my mom, my dad, whatever, I actually have to give them structure for what I need because I am not their child. I am my own sovereign being. And if we wish to have a good relationship, they need to know how to do that and how to exist with me outside of the roles of parent and child. It's human to human. If you want to hang with me, you got to respect me and I'm not beneath you. And that is a difficult concept for a lot of parents to grasp. But my parents grew up um, you know, in the 40s. They're they're uh, they're older, and they grew up with, you know, a lot of like more, um, you know, old fashioned uh, perspectives on some things that obviously chafed when I was a kid. Um, but they've been very adaptive with as I've gotten older, and I appreciate that my parents have been super flexible with me as I've gotten older, and they're willing to um, have difficult offspring. Um, and <laughs> they're willing to do that. Um, you know, but it's like, it's a relationship with another human and humans are messy. I mean, I think, you know, to the first part of your question, you know, I think that my unyielding, uh, approach, 
as a kid, basically forced my mom to get creative. It's like, I thought mothering was this and it's clearly not going to be that way with this one. And I think every parent has experienced this. Mm-hmm. I'm sure like every person before they became a parent was like, oh, I'm never going let, to let my kids eat chicken nuggets and sit in front of the TV. Bullshit. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm nodding here. I'm over here nodding. Yes, <laughs> yes. 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 Um, so it, like the, it's just funny because it's like there's the idea and notion of parenting as an abstract. And then there's the act of doing it. And I think that I challenged both of my parents in terms of their perspectives about what it would mean to not be a parent, but be my parent and to be my parent then and now and be my husband now, or be my friend now. All of them demand a lot of you because I demand a lot of me and I'm a lot and I love being a lot. And it's like, this is how you got to engage with me if you want to hang with me. And if it doesn't work for you, there's the door, you know, and everyone in my life has had to deal with that. I've been this way since very, very little, you know, it's, I've, mm. and yet, been a, and I've been yet. a bit of a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you just said that you've also had to adjust the way you present your big, bold, awesome self Absolutely. to people so that you can choose to have a relationship with them. I think that's a really important concept that some people miss, that you can yes. be all those things that you are and still choose yes. to adjust the way you present it mm-hmm. so that your relationships with others are equal, on equal footing, because you can't be all that and then not have any relationships because- oh, yeah. You're not going to have any influence if you don't have relationships. To your point, here's the fun part. I said, I'm a lot. My mom is a lot. My dad, (laughs) he is a lot. My husband, oh my God, he is a lot. And my friends tend to be a lot, right? And what's nice Uh is when when I, as a person who is, I I have a very big personality, when I hang around with other people who have a big personality, they're like, oh, you're awesome. You are such a comprehensive human being. This will be fun. But Sometimes people who haven't stepped into their allotness, they get terrified of this because they're like, <laughs> oh my God, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. But like, you're right, I have modified. Yeah. And, and you know, it's actually been a pleasure to do because I realized that my husband, he's a great example. So he is like a lot with a capital A. And um, oh my God, some of his mood swings sometimes, like if he feels something, like he gets like in the zone, he's like rolling deep with these feelings. And it's like, oh shit, buckle up. It's a lot. <laughs> and like, I've had to adapt myself to be much more gracious when he just is feeling something really intensely to listen harder, to help him draw it out. So it's not torturing him so much, you know, is it my default? No, but it's actually, it's becoming a default because now I've become more curious. And like, if my mom's like really upset about like, she misses her mother, like her mother would be 130 by now. So obviously she's been passed away for some time, but like, my mom is a very sentimental person. I'm not as sentimental. So I've adapted myself to just see when she's in this really soft place and she's got mm-hmm. these big feelings that are like running her over, or she just wants to reminisce because they make her feel the warmth of her mother's love again, even though she's been dead yes. for so long. You know, I lean mm-hmm. into that and I sit with that, even though that's not my place. That is me sitting with her bigness, her enormity, yes. and loving all of those feelings with her. And it's like, yeah, I miss Grammy too. Let's talk about it. Right. So you don't have to be a lot all the time. I mean, there are times no. when you you have to take that step back and let somebody else be a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or sometimes the the enormity of my heart can be just listening. And because of my, mm-hmm. I guess, my enormity as a person, which we all have, by the way, it's just sometimes it's just not expressed. I have such capacity to listen and mm-hmm. to love and to hold space. And like I'm famous for saying, I am uniquely capable of going to the deep, dark, and ugly places of the recesses of someone's hearts and minds in, in ways that few people can do because I am unapologetic about the bigness, the enormity, the allotness, mm-hmm. whatever they want to call it. Like if I can embrace the expression and and like the expansion, I can also embrace the contraction. I get to be both, and that is part of the enormity. It's like mm-hmm. you can you can give a lot, you can hold a lot, you can just 
do the whole damn thing enormously. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. I just had this incredible image in my head of that, of being um, almost like an, an envelope with your arms outstretched, ready and willing to um, embrace whatever comes into your arms and your arms expand and contract depending on the size of what you're embracing. I just had this beautiful image in my head, almost like a butterfly, which for some reason, butterflies have been really a big um, image in my head recently. I've been talking a lot to Meg Nossero who wrote Butterflies in Bliss. Ah. And um, I feel like I feel like there's so much around being in a cocoon from 2020 and the pandemic and um, expressing ourselves in different ways as we come out of it. And all of that, you can use the image of a butterfly to um, create more context for what you're trying to express, I think. Absolutely. I think it's a beautiful metaphor. And, you know, think about it. Butterflies are a lot. They are magnificent. They transform. They totally metamorphosize themselves. They they grow, they change, they have a short, brilliant, beautiful life, right? Um, but they, you know, they look so different when their wings are closed. You know, like there's even some butterflies mm-hmm. that have um, you know, they look like a leaf when they're all closed up and they look like the most radiant specter um when their wings are opened up. And the butterfly is both. Mm-hmm. We can be both. Right. Yeah, I think you know. Oh. I think that points oh, that to such awesome. a big, big. Well, thank you. I mean, I think it points to like a big part of like the work that I'm committed to doing with like the book and everything else that I care about. Like, I realize that I guarantee you, there's at least somebody listening to this right now is thinking, "Wow, she's full of herself. She's got a huge ego." No, I don't. I just finally stopped apologizing for my radiance, and I want other people to stop apologizing for your radiance because it's like. The beauty that we ho- that we hold inside of us, society has done such a beautiful job at getting us to close our wings, to use the butterfly metaphor. Mm-hmm. Open your freaking wings and see how beautiful you truly are. What would happen if you were remarkably kind and nurturing to yourself? What would happen if you accepted the enormity of who you truly are and stopped living so small so you don't upset other people? What if you just lived in the enormity and invited other people's, you know, what if you did that? I mean, that's why my relationships tend to be with other enormous people because they (laughs) are living in the fullest expression of who they are. And they're doing so without apology. Like I get a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. she's an intense lady and oh my God, she can sometimes be a wrecking ball, but her arms have the biggest capacity to love that I've ever, ever seen. I'm like, well, you get one with the other. So, okay. And I Mm -hmm. I get to love her for all of that. And what would happen if we could be grateful for everything, even the shit, Mm -hmm. all of it. What if we could really just choose each Mm -hmm. moment and just live with this one? Who cares about tomorrow? Who cares about yesterday? What if we could invite greater good energy and just actively consciously repel the bad? And what if we could just, I don't know, get off the hamster wheel of momentum and actually choose the way we want to live our lives. What if we could do all Mm -hmm. these things? Would we be more fully with consideration ourselves more? Yes. Who could we be? Mm -hmm. Because, because what we do and how we behave does impact others. Right. Um, If Mm -hmm. as an example that I used earlier before we hit record, if my boys, when they were little, were kicking the seat back of the, um, the, uh, and the airplane, they're kicking the seat back in front of them and bothering the person in front of them. I would, that's how I would uh, approach it. I would say, well, would you like that? If somebody was kicking the back of your seat and you could feel it, uh, I think Mm -hmm. think you'd be annoyed by that. So being considerate, knowing that your actions, your words are going to impact the people around you. And that doesn't necessarily stop you from doing things that you need to do, but at the same time, knowing that it's going to impact others and being intentional about it. Um, maybe even letting them know that, that you understand that this is impacting them. And in some cases you may need to apologize. I know this is going to impact you. This is why I have to do it. I mean, yeah. I, I think there's, you have to have both. Like you said, you have to embrace both sides of this conversation because otherwise you are by yourself. 
you know, and, and you can't have impact if you don't have relationships. I mean, right back to the beginning of the conversation, your relationships matter. So if you're managing up, you have to do it in a way that you understand how your behaviors and words are, are affecting the people around you. You have to consider those things. Mm-hmm. I think when we manage up, we have to, it could be our parents, could be clients, could be bosses, um, mm-hmm. any, anything in a, you know, alleged hierarchical structure. Um, we have to do so in such a way that helps the other person to be successful in what they're trying to do. And I think that sometimes mm-hmm. we regard the notion of managing up as con- condemnation or telling people what to do, or even managing in general. And it's like, right. no, 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 no. Like, like, if we're managing a child, right. And we're responsible for them and we're teaching them to, you know, like ride their to bike trust themselves or right? ride their bike, yeah, to ride mm-hmm. their bike. We're not doing it in a condemning way. We're giving them tools and guidance so they can be successful. So if we know that our boss is trying to, I don't know, create a new policy and maybe it's coming across a little heavy handed, how can we approach that in such a way that it would be like, Hmm, how can I help them be successful in this endeavor? Because right now they're missing the mark. What if we just looked at it that way instead of taking things so personally? What if we looked at it like my mom is really trying to connect with me, but she's just using the old framework that she's familiar with and she doesn't know about the new one. What if I help her to get the connection she wants and quit taking it so personally because it's landing poorly? What if? Mm, boy, I just needed to hear that so badly. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh. Seriously. I, I just needed to hear that so badly. Um, and, and that's a whole other conversation that would take us hours. <laughs> Laura, um, I would love to bring this full circle back to that whole questioning and doing it in a way that is in service to others, because I think this is really the key that will bring this whole conversation together. What you just said is incredibly meaningful in terms of being able to be your big, bold self while understanding the impact of being that big, bold self on other people. So if you were going to um, say something to our listeners about that balance and how I don't believe in balance necessarily, probably because I'm one of the least coordinated people I know. (laughs) So um, the word balance always makes me a little uncomfortable. It's funny. Um, in terms of how you would present things like that, what would you say to our listeners? And then after, tell our listeners how to get a hold of you, um, where the book is, and all the information that people can use to follow up and learn more about you and your big, bold self. Okay. Um, great question. I think balance is a difficult concept. Even equilibrium is a difficult concept. Just get it as well as you can is a good goal. Um, I I think that the biggest reason why we get things wrong when it comes to interacting with others or really being our big, bold selves is because we're doing so from a place of insecurity. And I'll I'll explain what I mean, and I'll I'll try to keep this brief. But if I think about something within the context of my mom, if I'm taking her behavior personally, it is my ego that is being um, you know, aggrieved, right? And if I let my ego decide, um, then you know how I approach things. That's not my higher self. I, if I remove my ego and I just operate from a place of logic and service, um, I can do that. But when ego anytime drives the bus, it's 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 our insecurity. It's our it's our need to be externally validated. But when we operate from a place of I'm already valid. I don't need the other people's approval and I don't need to trample on them in order to be important. Approval is irrelevant Mm -hmm. and standing on someone else is irrelevant because I'm already standing tall and I already have approval. So automatically when I can live, honestly, by virtue of the six habits, if I can live that way, it helps me to automatically redirect other people in a loving, supportive, helpful way that doesn't erode mm. them, that doesn't make me better than, it doesn't do anything to the other person, and it doesn't even bring their ego um, to task either. If we can leave ego out of it mm. and actually just realize I'm pretty good exactly as is, 
you're pretty good exactly as is. We just need a minor course correction. Let me serve you and help you. And we can do this from a place of solidness. It, God, it works. It works. It works well. The other person <laughs> responds well. Our bosses respond better. Our parents respond better. Our children respond better. Our spouses respond better. You know, I don't like the way you put the dishes in the dishwasher, hubby. Um, okay. What if we just did this from a place of service? Like, could you, could you phrase this differently if you were just truly being of service and your <laughs> ego wasn't involved? Yeah, try that. It'll go better. You'll be married longer. <laughs> So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, nobody's ever thought about that in the history I'm over here of marriage. Cheering. <laughs> yeah, I'm quietly cheering over here. Yes. Hey. Well, I've been married. It'll be 24 years on Monday. Uh, a week Congrats. From Monday. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's a long time. And I think that that is a big part of it is that, um, how am I going to ask him to do this differently? Because this, so the towel on the bar. You know, you you crunch it up in the back when you put your bath towel back on the bar and it doesn't dry properly and it drives me crazy. So how do I ask my husband to do something differently without my ego involved, without my um, frustration showing? I can say, you know, the towel just doesn't dry properly when it's in the rack like that. Right. And there's no, there's no ego involved in that. Literally like your, your frustration, if I can just be the armchair psychologist here for a second, your frustration is actually with yourself because you haven't managed to logically express it in such a way that the other person agrees that it is a problem. So Mm. you are actually frustrated with yourself, not your partner and your inability to, uh, get the problem solved the first time. So if you can actually take that frustration out of it, take your ego out of it, and also honor the fact that his might be there, you could say, you know, honey, I've actually noticed a bit of a scientific uh, problem, and I don't think I'm doing a good job actually explaining it. And I'm really frustrated with myself. And he would say, honey, why are you frustrated with yourself? Well, I'm frustrated because, you know, I objectively see that this towel here, you know, I know you're just putting it back there because you're just putting the towel back because that's what we do. But like, I'm noticing an implication here. And I feel like any way that I say this to you might injure you, but it's really stupid because it's just a towel. And I'm just, I just don't feel like I'm expressing myself really well. He'd be like, well, why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's not. But if we hang the towel this way, it would logically function better. Can we do that? Would that be okay with you? And- <laughs> well, the best part of that is that it may end up with laughter and humor, which is far more effective Absolutely. than any other aspect of correction. Is if you can Absolutely. do it with humor, it's going to be the thing. far like, more sticky, yes, and fun. <laughs> Absolutely, like I've done yeah. things like this with my Absolutely. own husband, and like, oh my god, he um, he he did this thing when we were living in Hawaii. It was kind of interesting. He would fill up the sugar container, but he would do it on the counter and little granules would be everywhere. Can you imagine the toe curling rage that I felt when I stepped on the floor and there was crunchies everywhere? <laughs> right? So logically- yes, Especially because of the ants that are it's going to attract. Uh, yeah, buddy. So, you know- It'll attract ants. My ego yeah. was like, you jerk, how dare you? You're ruining my life. I had to step on crunchies. Okay. But like logically, you know, I said to him, I actually remember this. I was like, honey, um, I know this is really stupid, but I've actually noticed a potentially more effective way to do this. Um, but I don't want to be offensive to you in the slightest. Is it possible that I might bring this up with you? Or am I being absolutely absurd right now? And he's like, what is it? What the hell is your problem? I'm like, well, (laughs) if you were to put the sugar into the container this way, I wouldn't be stepping on crunchies and I might not be confronted with the urge to murder you in your sleep, you know? (laughs) And then he's just like, those are both good outcomes. I'll do it that way. And we laughed our asses off. And he's like, you're really going to murder me in my sleep over sugar? Probably. That's how mad I was, which is absolutely stupid. And he's like, yes, it is, but I'm happy to do it this way. Like, it just turns it into something fun, you know? And I made it like, you know, I took all of the ego 
uh, assault away from him. And I assaulted myself because my ego mm-hmm. was intact. Right. right. And I just use right. that as a tool and it's guess, guess who loads the sugar correctly now? Yeah. And I always do it over the sink just so you know, because I can rinse the sink out really easily. <laughs> so, you know. And there is the logic, my friend. This is why we get along because we know to intuitively do this versus Okay. So, but so anyway, <laughs> we could live together some days, what you're saying. And, and I'd be okay we could, with that. I, we could I be think roomies. it would be hilarious. <laughs> I think so too. We'd be the odd couple for sure. So um, you had asked me where people could find out about uh, me, the book. If you go to lauradibenedetto.com, mm-hmm. if you can't spell it, you can always get there through the six habits.com, which is the S I X habits.com. If you want to read the book and I encourage you, please do. It is a book that will change your life. If you allow it to um, new, New ways of being are possible for literally all of us. You can get it on Amazon. It's also on Audible. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, you can listen to five hours of it. Um, <laughs> and I will read the book to you. But yeah, it's The Six Habits. Uh, the word six is spelled out on Amazon, Audible, and on the URL. Boom. Awesome. And if my if our listeners are uh, in the car or walking or uh, mowing their lawns, don't worry about it. Go to elkinsconsulting.com. Go to my podcast page and there will be a blog post associated with the podcast where you will see all the links and you'll be able to purchase the book straight from one of those links. So Laura Di Benedetto, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for spending time with me today. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places, and the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you. <laughs>